Have you spent much time thinking about that song? That song that every single person listening to this podcast knows every word of? That song that no one has ever bought on a record album? That song that we teach kids from a young age? That song that has such power? That song that is, in fact, a metaphor for cultural change and determining how people engage with one another? Yeah, you know the song I'm talking about. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'll let you fill in the rest. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the power of culture and alphabetical order. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. You've got an idea that might just change the world. But even the best ideas can benefit from additional and diverse perspectives. That's why we built Arminda. Arminda is a community of innovators, innovators who help each other by providing their thoughts and feedback when it's needed most at the concept stage. Whether you're an architect or a biologist, an economist or a school teacher, we can give your next project an additional point of view. Learn more and join for free at arminda.net. That's A-R-M-I-N-D-A.net. I hope this doesn't sound too trivial, because the thing about alphabetical order is that everyone knows it. We know it for a bunch of important reasons, and no one particularly cares about it. There is no one arguing that P should come before the letter M. There are definitely scholars who are arguing about the origins of alphabets and the difference between an abjad and an abacadary. An abjad, for those of you listening at home, is just the consonants, whereas an abacadary is the full alphabet. There are scholars arguing about whether omega, as in alpha to omega, A to Z, whether omega is a letter at all. There are no alphabets that we know of that use the minimum possible number of letters, but in order for something to be an actual alphabet, it can't have the maximum number of letters, because at that point, it starts being ideograms and pictures, not letters. Letters are an amazing, amazing invention. It's hard to imagine how someone pioneered and then got accepted the whole idea of letters. But then once we had letters, we had to teach them to our kids. Because like so many of the cultural things we've talked about on this podcast, if people don't know what the culture contains, it's not a culture. People have to understand your reference when you say, bye-bye, Miss American Pie, what are you talking about? Or else it just sounds like you're babbling. Well, alphabets in particular, we need to indoctrinate kids from a very young age. Probably not indoctrinate because it's so useful. Here is the alphabet. But in order to teach the alphabet, if we did it all in sort of a random roll-your-own fashion, we might miss a letter. We want to make sure we're teaching the whole alphabet and nothing that doesn't belong in the alphabet and not leave out any other letters. And so alphabetical order is born. It's a fantastic way to make sure you're not leaving anything out. And then we get to the heart, the question that I asked the Library of Congress, and it took them three months to get back to me with the answer, and they couldn't really disagree with me. In English. Is the alphabet in that order because of that song? Because it might be. It might be that the reason we all understand alphabetical order is not 
because when we were a little kid, we opened the American Heritage Dictionary and learned the order. It's because someone taught us the song. And so the punchline of my metaphor is, if you want to create a cultural norm, it helps to make up your version of the song. Because if people will all benefit from a consistent API that works the same way, then whoever writes the song is probably going to have their answer persist. The Phoenicians were great traders, and they brought things all over the world. And one of the things you need to do when you bring things all over the world is have inventories and lists. And one of the things you need to do when you have lists is you need a way to keep things in order and check them off. Numbers, of course, are always in numerical order. We needed something to come after eight, and so we invented nine. But it wasn't clear we needed something to come after X, and so we invented Y. The letters were there first. So alphabetical order became enforced because if you wanted to do trade, if you wanted to interact with other people, not only did you need to know how to read their words, but you needed a way to put their words in order. And so what does that have to do with you, creator of culture, somebody living in the modern era, long after cuneiform and other things back in the origins of Semitic languages in the Fertile Crescent? Well, the answer is when we are dealing with change, when we are dealing with technology, we are regularly inventing new things, new terms, new ways to talk about things. So the hashtag in Twitter just came to be one day. Chris suggested it, someone else used it, and if enough people used it, it caught on. I've had some interesting experiences with trying to do this and learned the hard way that it's not enough for it to be a good idea. There needs to be a song. There needs to be a group enforcement mechanism. A very long time ago, I wrote a book that I'm not super proud of called Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous. Had a great title. It was a cool idea. Here are 600 email addresses at the dawn of the internet with actual real people at the other side, people like Roger Ebert. Here's Roger Ebert's email address. And the idea was that you shouldn't misuse it. You shouldn't type in all the addresses on the list and then spam everybody. If you want to ask Roger Ebert a question or Bill Gates a question, well, here's your email address. Go ahead and do it. That's what I meant when I wrote the book. But of course, human nature being what it is, people abused it. But that's not the point. The point is that in the introduction to the book, I made a suggestion. And my suggestion was simple. It was that if you are sending an email to anyone, anywhere in the world, and it involves a commercial transaction, you need to put a dollar sign at the top of the subject line. First letter, dollar sign, and then follow it with what you're sending. Because when you get junk mail at home, it's got the dollar sign on the envelope. You can tell. You don't have to scan very deeply to tell the difference between a letter from your law firm and a letter from somebody who wants you to extend your warranty. And when someone does try to confuse you or trick you, you're annoyed. And so there was a cultural dynamic for what kind of stamp and what kind of envelope junk mail had. And so I proposed, look, we don't have a centralized enforcement mechanism. Email is, in fact, an open API. Let's all do this. Because if we all do this, it would be really easy to build filters to put all the email that had dollar signs in the subject line into one folder that you could look at later. Please remember, this is long, long before Gmail or even Hotmail, and it was just a hack on my part. And I thought it was a good idea, and no one did it. 
On the other hand, I did a book a long time ago called The Smiley Dictionary, in which I listed what had been going around the internet for a while, which are hundreds and hundreds of smileys, which then became emojis. And now, in fact, there is an emoji committee that approves which kinds of little smiley faces are going to get built in to the next generation of smartphone. The point of the smiley dictionary was it was a tool that people could look at and say, oh, this is what a puzzled smiley looks like. It was like the song. And what we see then is in order to create a cultural norm around something where people don't care so much about the specifics, but care a lot about enforcement and consistency of the specifics, the answer is we need to write a song. The answer is we need to write down the method. The answer is not only do we have to establish the glossary, what this means or what that means, but we have to come up with a way to consistently and persistently repeat that. Because here's the thing. People teach their kids alphabetical order because they want them all to know the same order. Because knowing the same order is useful and knowing the wrong order is a problem. There was a time when I was teaching little kids how to say it backwards. Z-Y-X, W-V-U, T-S-R, Q-P-O. That's off the top of my head without looking at it. And if a whole bunch of parents from Brooklyn started teaching their kids alphabetical order and backwards, there'd be chaos when they got to kindergarten. But that's not happening because the stakes are too high and the song is too clear. So perhaps it's worth thinking about things we don't usually think about. Maybe the alphabet is in that order because of that song. And maybe that thing in your organization that's contentious is contentious simply because no one's wrote the song yet. Because generally, when people come together, their goal is not to have an argument. Their goal is to be in sync. People like us do things like this. People like us do things like this needs a soundtrack. And if there isn't one, then people who want to manipulate us, people who want to divide us, will show up with their own version of the soundtrack. And as we've seen in this long tail world of media that we live in right now, it can be really dangerous and expensive. We can see that the number one cause of death in the state of Texas in the United States is a virus that is now completely preventable thanks to a vaccine. But someone wrote a song or the version of a song that spread. People like us do things like this. We've got to figure out which song we want to sing. I'm going to leave you with what I think is one of the funniest SNL sketches of all time. Years and years ago, there was a controversy in this country, my country, the United States, about switching to the metric system. And at some level, the metric system is a lot like alphabetical order because there is no real reason to prefer inches and feet to millimeters and meters. Yes, you can do some math in your head slightly differently, but what we really needed was everyone to just agree because computers can handle conversions. That wasn't the problem. The problem was we were looking for an order. So in this sketch, Dan Agroyd shares his suggestion for where the metric system could go next. Hello, 
Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about how the new metric system conversion will affect you in one of a series of public re-education programs designed to make Americans aware of the metric conversion to take place in the next 10 years. Now, most Americans already know that the measurement of miles will be discarded in favor of kilometers, a system of measurement based on the unit of tens and already in use in most of the world. Few people, however, know about the new metric alphabet, the decabet. Deca from the Greek, 10, and bet from our own alphabet. Let's take a look, shall we? A, B, C, and D, our most popular letters, will remain the same. E and F, however, will be combined and graphically simplified to one character. The groupings G, H, I and LMNO will be condensed to single letters. Incidentally, a boon to those who always thought that LMNO was one letter anyway. And finally, the so-called trash letters, or P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z, will be condensed to this easily recognizable dark character. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten letters, ten fingers. Simple, isn't it? Join me next time when we explore changes in alphabet soup and spelling bee contest rules. But now, let's sing that old childhood alphabet song, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, as we will hear it in the future. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. There are show notes there as well. Two good questions this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Nathan in Jackson, Mississippi again. And I had a question that's been kind of hovering in the back of my mind ever since you talked about uh, the linchpin jobs in one of your most recent podcast episodes. And for the second time in the last two years, I am faced with the potential for a layoff from a second company. Um, it's nothing that I've done. The company's not doing well financially. And I think the only reason that I survived the 
first round of layoffs is because I made myself indispensable as being the go-to person for emergencies. If content needed to be created of any kind, if a project needed to be done, they knew that they could count on me to get it done by the deadline, no matter what. But now I am faced with the possibility of having to go on the job hunt again. And I'm thinking about like, you know, networking and that kind of thing. And everybody says you have to use LinkedIn and social media nowadays to make contacts and get jobs because the job posts, you know, are you you have like a 4% chance of getting a job through a job posting. And I start thinking about the LinkedIn algorithm that it only favors you if you create lots of content with lots of engagement. It has to have pictures. It has to be video nowadays. But written content doesn't work. You have to have lots of the right hashtags and link to other accounts. And it sounds like you're essentially having to do, you know, LinkedIn SEO or social media SEO or whatever platform you're using. And you know, especially now with more and more work being virtual, people being able to work remotely from anywhere. How do you get jobs? You know, I don't necessarily want to spend hours a day networking and creating spammy content on LinkedIn or other social media sites and or copying and pasting my blog posts and making them fit the latest social media algorithm and requirements and that kind of thing. And I'm just, I'm wondering like in this day and age, what do you do to get in front of the right people to get jobs? Thanks for this one. You regularly show up with great questions that appeal to lots of people. So here we go. There's some real misconceptions about how LinkedIn works, how LinkedIn makes a profit, and how jobs find people and people find jobs. Most people don't know that more than half of LinkedIn's revenue comes from headhunters paying them for access to information about people on the site. That behind the scenes, they are reaching out to people who are in demand, offering them jobs, getting them to quit where they're working now and come work somewhere else. But the mythology of LinkedIn is that if you treat it like a social network, if you're constantly busy posting stuff, if you're finding friends or followers or whatever you want to call them, that somehow success on LinkedIn translates into getting a better job. And I'm sure there are examples of this actually happening. But that's not really the way most people get a great job. Most people get a great job because unlike not great jobs, great jobs tend to travel through two paths. One, the open call to lots and lots of people. And second, who do you know? That who do you know might involve hiring a headhunter, but it also might involve someone saying, oh yeah, I used to work with her. She's amazing. There are networks of people who know networks of people. And we've spoken on this podcast before of how hard it is to throw your resume over the transom because lots of people are trying to do it. The transom is really high. People don't actually read your resume. You get filtered out 
and they don't actually come to know you when they decide what to do. But if somebody looks at your LinkedIn page and it's solid, solid in the sense that a resume is solid, solid in the sense that you have connected with the right networks of people, that's probably enough. Unless you're a writer by trade, the fact that you've written lots and lots and lots of LinkedIn posts probably isn't going to get you a job as a process engineer. What's going to get you a job as a process engineer is that you have a reputation among process engineers. You can earn that reputation by helping others find jobs. You could earn it by writing actual useful content, leading edge content about process engineering. You could do it by showing up in the world in a public way with actual work product about process engineering that others come to see and respect. But the faux networking that goes on in a social network, that still is not a replacement for the actual networking that leads actual people to get jobs they actually want. And so the opportunity is to lean really hard into how can I be of service? How can I be of service to my community, to the people who I might even think of as my competition? How can I end up being one of the officers of the trade association? How can I sponsor a conference? How can I put together a newsletter for people in my industry? That what you're looking to do is earn both status and affiliation in the smallest possible niche where you can be seen as the obvious one to be considered by just a few people. Because when we're not part of a network, it looks like there's a vast, vast world out there that we have to impress. But once we found 100 or 1,000 or possibly 10,000 people we care about and we ignore everybody else, it's much easier to show up in a way that we're proud of. I hope that helps. Thanks. Hi, Seth. This is Phil in Indiana in the United States. I have a question about leverage and specifically two points of how status can sometimes, in my perspective, get in the way of leverage. In leverage, you talked about the concept of increasing access to high quality experiences, content through technology, whether that be a lecture, information on the web, whatever it is, getting that to people effectively. So the class can focus on discussion and concepts um, and facilitation rather than lecturing. And I love that idea. I'm in training and development and organizational development myself. And so I think that's great. But what I find is that sometimes, not all the time, but occasionally, status gets in the way of that occurring. Whereas someone wants to be in the front of the room giving the lecture when maybe they're not the best to do it. And so I'm curious, how can we overcome that issue of status to heighten status somewhere else? So that way the front of the room is not the most powerful position to be in. The second point of status that I think gets in the way of leverage is when we try to create these communities, like you said, in leverage, the smallest viable audience, getting delighting people and bringing them in. But sometimes when we create those communities, like I'm trying to do within an organization, it gets to be about us as the person creating it, the curator, the impresario that's putting it together. How do we make sure that that status doesn't come on us as an individual, but on us as the collective or us as the change that we make? Because I'm having a hard time creating that group of people without it focusing on me 
when I want it to be about we and what we do. Thank you, Seth. This is a really good question with two parts to it. The first one has to do with the front of the room and status among people who are used to being in the front of the room. One of the things that teachers are trained to do is to own the classroom. And so it feels like slumming it if you just sit still and have people watch a TED Talk. That's why Sal Khan's idea of assigning the lectures for people to watch at home, that their homework is to watch best-in-class lectures, and that classroom time is for Q&A and interaction, well, that actually raises the status of that teacher. Sure, it's harder work, and if their goal is to do less work, just show the lecture in class. But the old model of delivering a not very good lecture to people who have no choice but to listen to it, I think that over time, people are seeing that doesn't raise your status. In the short run, it gives you a sense of control. But if your status is about being the best teacher that kid ever had, if your status is about your peers seeing that you are getting exceptional reviews from students, that's going to happen because you learn how to communicate and interact and coordinate, not because you do almost good lectures. But the second half of your question really interests me because I think there's a misunderstanding here, which is that everybody wants status in every situation. And the answer is no, not really. And indoctrination has a lot to do with this. We have indoctrinated almost everybody, including ourselves, to resist taking the microphone, to resist saying, follow me. That if I'm in a room with 300 people And at the end of a talk, someone says, any questions, five or six people might raise their hand. What happened to the other 290 people who invested time and money to be there? They have no questions? Well, as soon as the gig is over, they come up to the platform, to the stage, to ask me their secret question in private. Why didn't they want to ask it in public? Wouldn't their status have gone up? Well, maybe, but it also feels risky. So when we think about building these communities, communities of peers, it is tempting to just keep handing the microphone to other people. And one movement that I've talked about a little bit, which was what happened in Zuccotti Park, seems like a million years ago, where they were talking about the 99%. They just kept handing the microphone around. And no one said, follow me. And that really hindered the forward motion of that movement, that there's nothing wrong with you assembling a group of people and saying, follow me, while also giving people a chance to grab the mic so that they can say, follow me. And it takes an enormous amount of effort to do each, both, either of those things in equal measure, to be careful and clear about where you are going, inviting people to tag along, inviting people to help, but also sensing enough about the group to know when it's time to say, here, you take the mic, you take the steering wheel, you drive. And there isn't a roadmap for any of this to belabor the metaphor, that we haven't yet figured out the reliable industrial way to build resilient peer-to-peer communities that get stuff done. For now, what it pays to understand is that the status of the entire group goes up when the group accomplishes something, but that individuals, 
individuals might be keeping track of something different than you are in any given moment. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.